T-minus 10, 9. You're listening to the Launchpad Podcast with J-Man. Brought to you by Galant Media. Here's your host, J-Man. Once again to the Launchpad Podcast. It is season three, and I'm very happy to be sitting down with this gentleman that's played 12 seasons in the CFL. He's a Grey Cup champion. Also a clutch big game player, some amazing stats that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Your shoestring catch, actually a little bit of a soccer catch there. Uh, One of the most notable catches in CFL Grey Cup history. In fact, many times it's popped up as number one. You are a 1996 CFL All-Star, a two-time Western All-Star. You've also played for both hometown teams, the Ottawa Renegades and the Rough Riders. Any chance of coming back for the Red Blacks? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely it not. is downtown Eddie Brown. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Nice to be here, man. Nice to see you. All right. So I'm wearing my, my sport-like colors. Uh, we nice talked a little bit about this before the podcast. We're going to talk about Ottawa, and we're going to be very transparent about your experiences here. Okay. Uh, we're also going to be talking about life as a single dad. Oh, God. Oh, yes. God, right? What's more difficult, Eddie? Eddie, being a single dad in today's landscape or playing football, which one would you rank as being more difficult? Hands down, being a single dad. Hands really? down. There's no comparison whatsoever. Okay. And so what's the most difficult thing about being a single father? Raising a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough said, being, right? Being a, being a man raising a woman in these days and times, man. And, and not only that, raising a, raising a young man, too. Like, it, it's, it's tough. You have to... You have to keep up with the times and make sure everything flows evenly. And, and like, you know, like as men, we're really not, you know, we, no one ever taught us how to raise a woman, right? So, I mean, you know what? Uh, I think I did a pretty good job at it. So time will tell. Time will tell. All right. I, so let's predate the kids. Okay. And we're going to talk about the name downtown. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> Are we already in trouble? Where did downtown come from? How do we get the okay. nickname? I, I really don't – well, I think when it started is when I was in Calgary in 1990, and so to tell you – to absolutely tell you this, my, my guys that I train right now, they absolutely make fun of me, but I tell them I hate that name. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I couldn't hate it too much because it was Wally, Wally Buono started it, and it happened out in Calgary in 1990, like I said. But then I remember I used to complain about it all the time, and he said to me, um, uh, stop complaining about it. Only the great ones get nicknames, right? right. So. I mean, then I left it alone. Like, you know what? I'll leave it alone after that. But, I mean, it, I just – I never understood it. I never understood where it came from until some guy explained to me, a reporter explained to me, all the, it's because of the deep balls and going downtown and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, buddy, downtown. I love it. <laughs> That's where it came from, man. So, you know what? I got to roll with it now. It's there to stay. Right. Now, let's go before the nickname. You're a young lad. At one point, did you know that football was going to be something that you wanted to pursue, not only as fun, but professionally, where you had a chance to make a real go of it? Um, I, I think I think at that point, I think in high school, um, I really didn't get much football playing experience in high school except probably for my sophomore year. Um, I was a quarterback back then. And, and the, the thing of it is, is that Sad as it may be, most of us use sports to get out of a bad situation, to leave somewhere or to do better for ourselves. And, and that, was, that was me. I mean, I really didn't have anybody that 
in my life growing up, I didn't really have anybody that I wanted to be like, you know, or wanted to emulate. So I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out. I want something, wanted something better for myself. Um, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to move about. So I, I decided to play football. But I was a basketball player. And um, I was a pretty good, damn good basketball player at that. But what happened was, is all my friends um, used to play football. So during the football season, I was just out waiting for them outside of practices and um, while they were practicing football. So then one, one day, uh, I, I don't know what happened. I grabbed the football and I started playing co- I started playing catch with the coaches. Um, with one of the coach's sons, which was a quarterback, and then I was out throwing him. And then so what happened is he, uh, uh, he invited me out to practice and the rest was history. Huh. Did you have a good three-point shot? Absolutely. I still do. <laughs> you know what? You could have been downtown in basketball, too, shooting the threes. Yeah, but at that time, no one was taking no one was taking six foot guards in the NBA. So I that's mean, right. Until Spud Webb and, and Muggsy Bowes came along, no small guards were uh, ever seen in the NBA. So. Right, and that's so much the case I find when it comes to professional athletes is that a lot of them had corridors to different sports. It's just a matter of which one it was that you wanted to play. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and so I, I'm surprised I, that you chose the more physical route. I'm always surprised when I find someone choose the more difficult route. Of course, you play less games in football. Yeah, less games, but, but then you figure out that what you're good at, right? I knew I was good at basketball. I didn't know I was good at football, but I started loving it. I mean, you know, when, when you got a football, when you put on the pads and you're underneath those lights at night, man, and, and you know, I, I was at a quarterback position, so it was fun. I mean, I was lightened up, throwing the ball around. I wasn't a runner, I was a passer, so. I really enjoyed it back then, and so I kept getting scholarship offers, scholarship offers. I decided to accept a scholarship to University of Tennessee. Um, things happened at University of Tennessee, and then I transferred to Iowa State University. I was at first I went to a junior college, and I went to Iowa State University. Okay, and then obviously you make your way to the CFL. Uh, you have a phenomenal career, uh, it was- and it's a good career. You had a, a solid career. And we talked about the number of teams that you played on during that tenure. So you had played on quite a few teams. Basically, it would look like a team a year. And you're saying there's a reason for that. And a lot of us are used to that type of number being associated to a journeyman, you know, a player that someone maybe had some good years and, you know, they can play a role position or possibly a veteran player just to help out the younger players. Yeah. Uh, explain why so many teams uh, during those years. Okay, when I first when I first like when I first started here in Calgary, um, I came from Calgary. I came to Ottawa, which was probably the worst mistake I could ever done in my life. But after best Ottawa, thing you ever did in your life. The, the, no, that wasn't the that as far as my football, football career, that wasn't the worst one. I'll tell you about the worst decision I ever made. But that wasn't the worst decision. But when I came to Ottawa, I didn't really enjoy it. So when I came to Ottawa, the first person that I met in Ottawa was Damon Allen. Uh, he took me in. His family took me in. I spent a lot of time with him that summer learning the CFL game with him and Stephon Jones. They taught me a lot of different things. Um, and then from that point on, I played that year here in Ottawa. Then after Ottawa, I decided to go back down to the United States. So that's when the World League of American Football, I got drafted in the World League of American Football, and I went to play for Sacramento. I went back to my hometown, played for Sacramento, um, and what happened with Sacramento is that I just, it just blew up. Um, from that point on, I went down in Sacramento. I wasn't doing very well. Um, when I first got there, I was doing a lot of running my mouth and talking and, and, and thinking I was a lot better than I was. 
And then a coach sent me to um, sent me to Los Angeles with another coach, and I got a chance to work with a few NFL receivers. But I got a chance to work with Jerry Rice, wow. um, and that's when I learned how to play the game, play the game, play the receiver. Um, to be honest with you, that man made me cry. <laughs> that man, yeah. um, Jerry Rice was a, he's a phenomenal athlete, but he's not a very nice dude, man. He, um, but you know, in, in all due respect, he he expected greatness out of himself. So he was doing his workout. I had to get in where I fit in, and it, it, it wasn't the train wasn't stopping, right? So from that point, I came back. Um, what happened is I signed in Kansas City. Uh, things happened in Kansas City. So then I came back to, um, to Canada and went to Toronto. So I was reunited with uh, Adam Rita, who was uh, – so that's where I met Adam Rita. Adam Rita was the uh, head coach in Toronto at that time and a phenomenal man, a great coach. And basically what happened with my career is that I followed uh, Adam Rita and the same quarterback, Damon Allen, around for our whole career. Like, I played with Damon Allen in Edmonton. I played with him in uh, um, uh, Edmonton, Memphis, Ottawa, so BC. So pretty much was it the same quarterback and the same coach. Whenever I came available, he would trade for me. If you need a receiver, he'd trade for me. So it wasn't like I was asking for my release or and to go play at different teams or chasing a check. It was I was with the same coach and the same quarterback my whole career pretty much. Right. Basically one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game wanted Eddie Brown on his roster. I don't know if he wanted me on his roster. But Adam, uh, well, Adam the, wanted me. The collective. The collective. Yeah, collectively. Yeah, collectively. Damon, and right. I, Damon and I never really got along all, I mean, the whole time. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a bad relationship, but Damon, Damon had a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. I never understood why this man played 20-some-odd years in the CFL and never became a CFL. And, and as far as I'm concerned, he was the best that did it but right. then it seemed like every time a new one would come in, Flutie's and this and that, they would give it to someone else where it was pressure, man. It was pressure for him. And, and then on certain teams, he was told where to throw the ball. Like, right. And, uh, you know, and, you know it, it, doesn't always work. it didn't always work out for me. But right. Okay. Now, you were a slot back in the CFL, and you had three 1,000-yard seasons. Yeah. No easy accomplishment. 63 career touchdowns. Uh, you had excellent numbers as a pro, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> now, for a lot of people that chase perfection in the game, uh, the people that perform, usually there's some crazy pregame rituals, visualization, stuff like that. What did Eddie Brown do to prepare for a football game? I, 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 I used to watch the same movie all the time. And what movie? Uh, any Given Sunday. Okay, I thought you were going to say Dirty Dancing. I was like, no. oh, it's such a great flick. Any, any given Sunday, I was a witty demon fan, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any given Sunday, either be, the night before the game or the before the or the right before the game, depending on what time he's played. I used to watch that movie all the time. Right. Um, and so, did you have it like? Was it a VHS at the time? Like, how would you carry it around? You couldn't have it on your phone or something like that. No, it was v, it was VHS. Yes. <laughs> yeah, VHS at the time, man. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah, so I just told my age by saying that. Too. Right, absolutely. Well, that was the goal. See, I'm I'm yes. getting you to open up, and you don't even know it. Get me to open up, man. Here we go. Uh-oh. Right. So we talked about some of the quarterbacks that you played with, Damon Allen, etc. Mm-hmm. And then we elaborated on that beforehand. 
who would be the person that you enjoyed playing with the most? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a quarterback, but you have played with some of the premier quarterbacks in yeah. CFL history. There's several players I enjoyed playing with the most. I, I enjoyed, as a quarterback, I really enjoyed playing, playing with Ricky Foggy. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Foggy, um, Danny McManus was a good one. Um, I enjoyed playing with Gizmo Williams. He was yes. Very, very comical, man. Very comical. Uh, of course, Damon. Damon was Damon was probably the most um, uh, peculiar quarterback I've ever played. Okay, and how so? Did he have some weird pregame rituals, or you weren't allowed to talk to him at a certain time? Or just a weird dude altogether. Damon was Damon. Like he he was one day he would talk, next day he wouldn't talk. He always had a smile on his face, but then you know it was he was a weird dude. And like I said, he was getting a lot of pressure from the league, and right? Teams and you know what? He was constantly having to prove himself. Right. Even after 20-something years, he always had to prove himself. Right? But I played with a lot of good players. A lot of fun players. Right. Now, obviously, if you're playing on good teams yeah. and you have good players, that puts you in good situations. Yeah. Right? And let's talk about 1993. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a, a great cup win for you. Yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's the cream of the crop. That's where everybody wants to be. Everyone wants to drink out of that cup. You did it. You performed very well. Four receptions, 114 yards. I broke it. Yeah? I broke the great cup in the locker room. How did that happen? I was drinking out of it. Well, it seems like a pretty straightforward procedure. How do you go about, like, breaking it? Did you drop it? What people don't understand is it's not the real great cup that goes around. All right, right. So, So what happened was, like, they poured champagne in it, and it was going around the locker room, and I grabbed the two handles when it was my turn, and I put it up to my face, and all of a sudden it just snapped down and, and hit me on the stomach and everything, so I broke the great cup. Oh, right. that's, that's a story in itself. <laughs> it's a story in itself. It was embarrassing when it died, right? I can imagine. I had to break the great cup. Right. Now, you played a big role in that win. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a big game. That's a clutch game yes. for you. What was it like – coming towards the end of that game, knowing that you were going to win, what were the emotions of something like that, especially when you played such a large role in it? Well, you know, one thing you have to understand about me, man, I've never been a big rah-rah guy. And, and no one could ever tell you that I was. I was never a big rah-rah guy. So honestly, to be perfectly honest with you, with about two minutes left to go in that game, um, they had the ball. We knew that game was over. All the guys are jumping around the sideline. I was over at the stands helping the fans, or helping the fam- family and friends out, out of the stands onto the field. Right. So I was pulling, I was helping the wives and the children and, and the girlfriends and everyone climb the wall and step onto the field. That's, that's where I was. So I missed everything. I missed the podium. I missed everything because I was helping people, you know, right. helping the family and everyone, helping families get on the field. And then you break the fucking Grey Cup. And then I break the <laughs> That's yeah, wild. That was it for me. I, you know what? I got I got shit for that for probably the whole season before after that, right? Next season. Right. Yeah. So your goal always as an athlete is to be at your apex, right? And in regards to accomplishments in the league that you were playing at the time, yeah. you won a great cup. You won the championship. How does that mold you as a player? How does that affect your posture? What was next for Eddie Brown at that point? It really, it really didn't change me. It, I, was, I, I was always going to be the best. See, there's one. There's only one guy in the CFL. Only one guy in the CFL ever. And, and I played for 12 years, and there's only one guy in the CFL that I was chasing. 
And that was myself. I was chasing myself. But as another player, I always wanted to be, I didn't want to be like the person. I always wanted to um, compete against Alan Pitts. Right. Alan Pitts, as far as I am concerned, was the best wide receiver in this league that I have ever seen. I mean, um, even when, when I was in Calgary, we were rookies together in Calgary. I mean, I remember when I came into camp, Alan Pitts was at the bottom of the depth chart. He was behind Dave Sponges. He was behind me, Derek Crawford. And I didn't understand why. But we had the, the deadliest, I think, probably, that's probably the best receiving core I've ever had a chance to be around. It was, it was unbelievable there. I learned a lot there. But as, the, as my career went by and as watching, I would always make sure that if he had a good game the night before we played or that week, I, I had to make sure that I went out there and gave everything that so I had, could have a good game. Because I always wanted to be like, we're always chasing goals and athletes are always chasing goals and records and, and this and that. No, I was basically chasing myself because I wanted to be better than I was the game before or the day before. And then I was always chasing Alan Pitts because as far as I'm concerned, he was, he was a type of receiver that I wanted to be like up here. Right. Right. And, and, and he was very good, very humble guy. Um, and always working. Always working. His work ethic was incredible. So mindset is huge in professional sports, especially when it comes to the elite. You talked about Jerry Rice wanting to make you cry. I immediately thought of the last dance in Michael Jordan. Not yeah. always the nicest guy to be around, but if you want to win, this is the type of guy that you want to follow. So yeah. how did mindset play a role in your development as a player moving forward even into today's life? Um, I wasn't always a nice person playing football. Um, I was there to do a job. I wasn't there to make friends. I lost a best friend that I hung out with in the off seasons all the time. I lost a best friend in the game. I lost two best friends in games. Um, I've been spit on, stepped on, uh, called names during games. But you know what? I was there to embarrass you. I, I wanted to embarrass you on national TV in front of your family and friends. I don't care who was watching. I wanted to embarrass you. And the way I want to do that is I'm going every, every game I'm going to you know, I remember one game, I'm not going to say his name, but I remember one game, he, uh, I, I got, it was a playoff game in Edmonton. Um, we were playing against Saskatchewan and the receiver in the, in the pregame, the, the defensive back spit in my face. So when it was on national TV, and at the time, uh, my, girl, my, my girlfriend at the time, I saw that on national TV and, and she was horrified. But during the app, I went back in the locker room, I came back out. And I went to the guy's sideline, and I just walked up down their sideline, not saying a word, walking down their sideline about three times. I looked at the head coach, and I told the head coach, you're going to cut him after this game. I said, I'm going to make you cut him after this game. And I told him, I'm going to tell you every single route I'm running the whole entire game, and you'll never be able to stop me. And right. at that game, I actually scored three touchdowns. I had like 150 yards against him. And Monday morning, we woke up, and his ass was on the waiver wire. Right. So that was my goal. My goal was to embed. I didn't care. I didn't have any. I didn't want. Once I stepped across the white line, uh, I, I, I didn't have any friends. You know, it was, it, because I knew that at any moment, like I think I was the only receiver on my, any of my teams in Edmonton. That every single time we came back to camp, I had five receivers behind me, mm -hmm. waiting to take my job. They were, and they, the other receivers had nobody, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I had to deal with. Um, right. my thing was, um, I wanted to be, I wanted to be competitive and I wanted to stay on top of my game. And, uh, I tried that to the best of my ability my entire career. 
Right. And that mindset obviously propelled you uh, to great heights. You were recognized yes. as an all-star, two times a Western all-star. What is it like to be recognized by the league as being one of the premier players? Obviously, you thought you deserved it because you're out there trying to ruin people's lives. <laughs> uh, well, the thing of, the thing of it is, at the, time, at, at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. Because right. I, I absolutely, like, I can honestly tell somebody, I can honestly tell you for the first for the first five or six years, that I, first six years that I played in the CFL, um, I really enjoyed it. I really absolutely enjoyed it. But, but after that, I absolutely hated it. Um, there was one point in my career, which was probably the worst mistake I could ever have made, is, is, is I had um, signed a free agent contract to go to Montreal. And I should have stayed in Montreal. But right. I did stay in Montreal. One thing led to another, and I went to BC, which was probably the utmost worst decision in my entire football career that I could ever Okay, play. and I'm surprised to hear that because obviously, well, Montreal, you were playing with a great quarterback. No, I wasn't playing with No, that. no. Oh, you weren't? Who was there I, at the time? Tracy Ham. I didn't oh. consider Tracy Ham a great quarterback. I okay. Consider, I, I considered Tracy Ham a great friend, but not Okay. Great. Well, he okay. was a great – okay, I'll, I'll take that back. Tracy <laughs> Ham was a great quarterback, but he wasn't my style of great quarterback. Right, okay. Yeah, you didn't have that gel. And no, then... I, didn't gel. I didn't get a chance. Anthony Calvillo was the second-string quarterback. Right. Sorry. And I remember when he came in, uh, we played a preseason game against Calgary, actually, when I was in Calgary, and I caught three touchdowns from Anthony Calvillo in the preseason. Right. Ham was more of a mover. Yeah, runner. He was right. Yeah. Right. You wanted the guy that was going to throw downtown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to understand something, too. At that time in Montreal, it was tough for me to be, to be in Montreal because at that time I was a high-profile wide receiver, right? And they had the best running back in the league, Mike Pringle, which I played with in Sacramento. Right? Okay. Mike Pringle wasn't Mike Pringle in Sacramento until he came to the CFL and started bashing people. But then we had um, we had Ben Cahoon, um, we had Jock Kleine, was myself, and 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 Mike Pringle. But at the time, we had an offensive coordinator that just did not understand what to do with all that power. He right. didn't understand if if any if it was any other offensive coordinator. Um, it would have been over for the CFL with right? That, with that kind of roster. So what made it the biggest mistake when you landed in BC? It was absolute. BC was probably the most absolutely horrible team because it was filled with selfish football players. Okay. BC at that time when I went there, it was filled with – It was I had never seen that amount of selfish football players in my entire life. Everybody wanted to be the man, but you couldn't be the man. It was everybody. And, then, you know, I, I went there with Adam Reedham and Damon, and Damon wasn't the same person. Um, and then uh, Adam was there for a while, became the general manager or something, but then I had to play for this moron in Greg Mons. Um, and Greg Don't Mons, mince your words. Don't you mince know, words. I'm sorry, tell me to shut up, but Greg <laughs> Mons wasn't, I mean, I, I, at one time in, in Toronto, when Greg Mons was in Toronto, I thought Greg Mons was a great man, he's a great general manager or a player personnel director. But as being a head coach, um, being a head coach, you have to be able to manage not only grown men, but you have to be able to manage egos. You have to be able to manage an immense roster of talent, right? And there was a lot of talent on that team. And as far as I'm concerned, he could not manage that talent. And it was like, you know, whenever you have to go to the, you go to the extremes of telling a quarterback who to throw to because you're paying that guy more money than you're paying everybody else, that's a problem. You're not interested in winning anymore. You, you're in a West, you're interested in making other people happy. Right. It's, it didn't become about winning. So, and, and not to mention, I was there with 
a bunch of idiots. So BC was not, but I remember I wanted to leave BC and I was doing everything I possibly could to get out. I was trying to sabotage my, uh, my career to get out. I wanted to get out of it. They wouldn't release me. I wanted to get out of there. But I remember Danny Bear came to me and he told me, if you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to make all-star. I'm like, this man is absolutely crazy. Right? But then I ended the season with great numbers. Um, it didn't feel like it because I wasn't getting as many. It didn't seem like I was getting as many touches or as many balls as I was previously used to. But I ended up making the all- Western All-Star that year. And, and I did make the Western All-Star that year. He told me I would. Right. So, I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't all bad, but it was probably – well, it was the worst decision. Other than coming back to Ottawa. <laughs> you had to throw that in there, right? <laughs> yes, probably the worst decision in my career. I came back to Ottawa and played the Renegades, and it was absolutely you know, Right. And listen, this is a completely different time in football, right? And I think Ottawa natives know what was going on with Ottawa teams. It was management. It was players. It was everything. The, the organization was in disarray for many, many years. And it's only until recently that it's actually finally started to find its footing and establish itself as being a more legitimate football team. Uh, the league is obviously a lot more stable. Uh, so, well, that's right. Now <laughs> they just got, they just got denied a grant. Actually, they were looking for some COVID relief and they got wiped so that, off to the side. That, that's going to hurt the league too. Right now, this right now, right now what's happening is the stability of the league is up in the air right now. Right. Right. There's a lot of like, you, you know, you got to think about something. You have a lot of Canadian football players on, on CFL rosters that have jobs outside of football. Right. So now with COVID stuff happening, um, now they got to go back and do that for the time. So basically, after setting out football the entire year, it's going to be very, very hard to get good Canadians back on your roster. Right. Not now, to mention, Not to mention how you need the Americans back over the board. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit because it was the norm, at least to my recollection, back in those years, is that the salaries were not like the salaries of today. And there were many, many players – high-profile players even, or higher-profile players than one might expect that were working jobs in the off-season to be able to do the things that maybe they wanted to do in life, whether they were, you know, single dads or possibly the wife wanted a new car, whatever it might be. Uh, Was there any point in time during your playing career where you had to go outside of your player salary to make ends meet? I always did. Yeah. (laughs) I always did. So – like, what I used to do, is, and, and people will tell you this, I used to work in Foot Locker. I worked okay. in Foot Locker when I played in Ottawa. I came back in Edmonton. I used to work in Foot Locker. I made all my, all my like, all of my friends are outside of football. Okay. I, and I'm honest with you about that. I do not have maybe a handful of friends that I remember I had when I played football. All of my friends were outside of football. I, I met them at working at Foot Locker. I worked at Athletes World. Yeah, all my jobs were outside. I, and I come back in off-season and work. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of guys didn't. And, and what people don't understand is back in the 90s, you remember when they used to put our salaries in the newspaper? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So our player, our, our player, our, our players organization got together and we put a stop to that. They put a stop to putting our, our, our salaries in the newspaper because you used to get fans that would, if you have a bad game, they would call in or write in or say something about, oh, he's making too much money or he's not making enough. So the players were making good salaries back then. It, it was comparable to now. You just didn't hear about it. You didn't know about it. Then after that, it became personal service contracts um, and different things. So the players have always made their money. They've right. always made their money. 
It's just that it was publicized then and it's not publicized now. Right. Okay. So you've achieved all these accolades in the CFL. You've won a great cup. I'm going to assume that the end goal was potentially to play in the NFL. The end goal was to play in the NFL. I had an opportunity to play in the NFL twice, three times actually. I was in San Diego. I got drafted in San Diego, or not drafted, picked up in San Diego my, my year out of college, came up here, went back, signed with Kansas City, came back up here and played a couple of seasons, and I had a chance with Seattle, but I never accepted that chance. Um, the reason why I came back to Kansas City was some personal issues, at, you know, back at home, back here at home. Um, and then the reason why I didn't go to Seattle the second time is because they weren't paying me enough to move. I mean, I wasn't chasing the dollars. I was chasing perfection. I wanted to be the best football player possible. But right. then the people don't understand is there was a lot of talk about speculating why I left, um, why I left Kansas City. Um, I left Kansas City for, I don't want to get into the reasons why I left Kansas City, but it was probably, it was one of the reasons why my life changed, my life changed Right. So I had to come back and take care of stuff that, and, and be with someone and take care of stuff that needed to be taken care of. So um, my personal relationships and my family um, was, was, was the number one thing that I had to do. And football was on the back burner. I, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I tried to explain that to somebody, but all they cared about was me staying there, being the next Jerry Rice and playing football. Because I, had a, I was having a great camp in Kansas City. I was going to be a starter without a doubt. But then something happened, and I had to come back. I had to. And, and for me, those decisions are easy. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you didn't want to get into it, but it's also my job to get into it a little yeah. bit. Can you share in any way, shape, or form? At the end of the day, and I'll, I'll share something with you, Yes, is that in regards to this podcast, when I, when I started doing it, mm -hmm. it was just going to be based on entrepreneurs, right? And teaching entrepreneurial lessons and how to overcome obstacles, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. I started to branch out talking to more high profile people and realizing that there is an entrepreneur in all of us, right? And we all face obstacles and we're all looking for solutions to those problems and we can share that with others. And I think that this is a great platform, especially when I hear I don't want to talk about it, <laughs> is that there, there's also an opportunity for great learning for other people. And I won't push, I won't push it any further than that. And I, and I won't ask any follow-up questions to whatever it is that maybe uh, you'll potentially share. But I, I feel that there will be uh, a, a real moment of learning and an ability for you to teach beyond by just sharing what it is. No, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Um, you probably know already, but I, I lost my wife to cancer, breast okay. cancer. Um, it's been uh, like 13, 14 years now. And at the time when she passed away, I was, I was, a, I became a single parent. I had a five-year-old daughter and a barely one-year-old son. So I'm this football, this ex-football player that's, um, riding high, doing all the stuff, going out, doing all this other stuff, hanging with my buddies. And then the next day, um, you know, it wasn't the next day, but then I become this single father, right? So to go back to my past, there was a scare. I had to come back. Um, and I wasn't even, I wasn't even, I didn't even hesitate. You know what is done. So what people don't understand is to make it perfectly clear. It's not like I just left. I, I paid back a, a significant, a significant signing bonus. 
in Kansas City. I pay, I gave it back. I gave it all back, like every single thing. And I think that's what threw them off is because it's not like I fought. I didn't fight. I had to, I got to go. I got to go. And here's your money back. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I was called crazy. I had someone, people said I had a brain problem. I was bipolar. No, there's some things in life that people need to understand. Your family and it is more important than any, any, any dollar sign ever. And me, I was not going to let someone put a price tag on my head based on what I had to do for my family. And I wasn't going to let you do that. And I'm, I'm like that to this day. Um, I believe family is the number one thing. And I don't think everybody feels that way because you got a lot of idiots out there pulling um, crap on their families like you wouldn't believe. But no, I'll get up and leave for my family in a minute. So now, present day, I'm a single parent of a 20-year-old, uh, uh, absolutely amazing, amazing 20-year-old young woman and a 14-year-old son that are absolutely the, the most fantastic human beings I've ever been around in my entire life. So what I, all I can say is that that, that that experience in Kansas City changed my life and made me extremely bitter for the rest of my entire career um, because I started to realize what these general managers, um, what these coaches, and what the majority of these players were all about. They weren't about, they weren't about being real. They were only about what, what they wanted people to see them as and be perceived as, right? So you want to be looked at as this big-time football player, but every night, you're crying at night over whatever reason. You're not being real about it. Right. And, and I'm a real, I'm real. I mean, you and I are familiar with the same people and those people will tell you that I, I'm real. I don't mince my words. I, 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 um, uh, I'm, I'm true to who I am. Mm -hmm. right? Thank so, you for sharing. No problem. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a phenomenal thing. And some, will beat me with my choice of words on that. But when people pass, like passing, there's two things in, in life that death can bring. It can, it can crumble you yes. or it can rebuild you. And you have that choice. And I spent a lot of time crumbled after my mom's passing. Uh, but it's only in that grieving. And I, I grieve to this day uh, that it made me want to change my ways. There was nothing else that was able to shake me strong enough to get me on the path that I am right now. So as much as I'd love to have my mother here right now, <laughs> she knows that the, the only way I could come to where I am right now is for things to have been laid out the way that they Absolutely. were. And so Absolutely. now I do my best each and every day. And it's part of the reason why I do this podcast, right? Is to live better, to do my best to teach, whether it be myself or through others like yourself that just shared a very powerful story. And I really, really well, do it, appreciate that. It, it crumbled me as well. It, it crumbled me like you wouldn't even imagine. And it, and it all, and not only did it crumble me, you know, I lost my best friend. I lost you. I lost my rock. And what it, what it did for me is that it, it, it kind of hurt me for relationships for future, right? Um, not now, but, you know, right now I even have a hard time trusting people. Um, all that stuff. And I've never really trusted anyone, but I have a hard time trusting people. And I just don't really, I don't really understand now. I really don't understand when you go through something like that and you lose a, you lose a spouse, or you lose that kind of person and you go through life like the way I have, I have a hard time understanding relationships and the way people do things and the way they go about it. I, I have a hard time with that. Um, I see people that, 
um, that do that do awful, dirty, shitty things to people. And I have a hard time understanding why. I also have a hard, hard time understanding why you take it. Why do you take stuff like that from people that that are not trying to help you, they're just hurting you and, and you take it. So I guess what it developed in me is that I have a low tolerance for bullshit. Um, so if I, if I sense any kind of nonsense, any kind of bullshit from anyone, a male, a female, a friend in my life, I'm done. <clears throat> I just stopped being friends with someone I've been friends for over 30, almost 30 years with because I don't enjoy being involved in shitty relationships. Right. Yeah. And so that's where it put me now. I had this conversation and I won't mention a certain time because <laughs> it will yeah. narrow in an individual yeah. uh, that passed away that I found out passed away. And I called one of my friends and mentors just to have a conversation about it because he's very much a philosopher type. And it was someone that I was very close to for a rather short period of time, considering, you know, my, my life's time spent on this earth. And this gentleman, he lived a little bit of a, a rough lifestyle where I was naturally kind of a more straight, narrow guy, never big on the drinking or the drugs or anything like that. And when I found out about his passing, I'm like, man, you know what? That was someone that I spent so much time with at one point in my life. And it's been a while since we had a conversation and now he's gone. And I felt bad for a moment. Then it turned into just a little bit of sadness. And then realizing that I've done a lot of personal development through my life. And there's some people that are supposed to stay and there's some people that are meant to go. And when you're doing a lot of self realization is that it's very normal and you may not even notice it. It's just like the ebb and flow that you start shedding this skin and people just fall off. You don't even necessarily have to tell them to go. Yeah. It's just something that that happens. And so it's really interesting to see that, you know, 30 years down the road of a friendship with someone, because I don't even have that yet, uh, that you're still shedding skin and you're still evolving oh as a human I being. I don't hesitate, you know, uh, like, I, like I, had, I had a conversation with someone the other day and like I tell them, I tell people all the time, you know, our, our, brain, our brains are, the way our brains are wired, our brains are wired for connection. Yes. We're wired for connection, right? But when you go through something, trauma, trauma can mess that connection up, right? And that's why you see hurt people, hurt people. And you see it every day. So, you know what, you have to be strong enough to, okay, say enough's enough. I'm done. I'm done dealing with it. Um, you're not putting enough in my situation with this person. Like I won't narrow it down either because it'll, you know, but I really don't care. But my situation with this person is that, okay, we're friends, right? We're friends. But you know what? When I needed you the most, I needed you the most. You, you, you were not there. <clears throat> and you were my best friend. I needed you the most. You were not there. So it's, it's, it's been carrying, I've been carrying that weight. I carried that weight with me for 13 years, Right. It was finally, enough is enough. It was getting heavy. I need to let it go. <clears throat> Shedding skin is not a problem for me. When you have someone in your life, like a friend, and you, you're, not putting, um, you're not putting enough in your friendship cup, and I'm not putting enough in his friendship cup or her friendship cup, it's time to go. Right? It, it's done because there's nothing more we can offer each other. We've tapped out. There's nothing more. And so let's just, let's just walk away. I'm going to leave, leave each other alone. I'll love you from over here. Okay, but I just can't be in the same 
realm with you anymore. And and that's where I'm at with people right now. I, I don't really care. I really I care about it, but it, it's not a lot. It, it, it won't take a lot for me to be like, I'm done. I'm, I'm really done. I'll walk away. You know what? Because it's, it's, it's hard enough to go through life the way it is right now with all this junk going on in the world right now than to be with someone or be around someone that doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Well, here's my friendship cup to you. Yes, sir. I let's, my, let's, I, let's fill this cup. It's the time. <laughs> we'll it's fill these cups. It's 1250. <laughs> rum or something. No, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for sharing, brother. There's a lot of learning right there. Uh, I appreciate that. So uh, let's step back into football just for a little bit. And the time that you were playing, I consider to be the greatest years of the CFL. Some of the most amazing players. The talent pool was deep. And players, they were household names. People knew who you were talking about when it was the CFL. Now, with that being said, we have spoken about the NFL, and that seems to be you know, like the upper echelon of where players want to be. Now, where would you compare the level of the CFL? And I know they're different games, the CFL to the NFL transition. But in regards to like the talent pool that you were playing with at that time, compared to what was going on in the NFL at that time, would you consider that was maybe the closest those two leagues were ever to one another? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say the closest, but I would say that um, when I played in the era that I played, we had a lot of phenomenal, some phenomenal athletes, some great individual athletes that, that could have played in the league. It was a choice. They made a choice, right? They made a choice to come here and get more playing time than be there and just take up a roster spot and not play. Um, right now, I, I wouldn't compare it at all right now. The, the players right now, I would say, are, are very soft. They're more um, – they're more – uh, they're into the, the, the drip, they call it now, the swag. and They want to look pretty. But back then, it was hard-nosed. You couldn't I, – like, I, I can't compare. There's no quarterbacks. Take quarterback position for, for an instance. There's not a quarterback in the CFL right now that can compare to your Damon Allen's, your Ricky Parvies, your Doug Flutie's, your Tracy Hams, your, your – your, your, um, uh, Garcia. Garcia's, you, you can, Jeff Garcia's. You couldn't, you, you couldn't compare to that right now. There's no way you can compare – and even receivers, too. Alfred Jackson, um, Alan Pitts, uh, Dave Suspunges, all those guys, you could not compare. You, you cannot compare. I remember back then I met a receiver who ended up being the best man at my wedding, Donnie Blair. He used to play for Calgary Dinosaurs. And I, I tell you right now that, that that receiver right there could, out, could, could outdo any receiver in this era, era by, by far. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even compare. Right. We're not even going to running backs. And Mike Pringle will shatter everybody now. <laughs> yeah, it's just bust bones. It's just bone crusher. Like, it's just it, – it, it was an era of football where it was just it – was, it was good football. It was really good football. You don't even see any Gizmo Williams anymore. Mm-hmm. And now CFL today compared to CFL of yesteryear. Flag football. Yeah. It's soft. It, it's soft because now you got players – you don't even – you can't identify with them anymore. Um, you got expansion this, expansion that, like – I remember when I played for Ottawa back in the Rough Riders and even a little bit in the Renegades, everybody in the city could identify with the players. They see you out. They speak to you. You know what? I, I can honestly tell you, I've been somewhere around these football players here and the, and the Red Blacks players, and I couldn't tell you. I don't even know any of them. 
Mm-hmm. I could tell you, I've seen a couple of my senior faces somewhere before, but I don't know if it was at Walmart or, or where. I just don't, I mean, it's just, you can't identify with it. And it's a bad thing because they've won, what, they've been to three great times. Right. Hey, the halftime shows, though, much better. Absolutely. <laughs> the Great Cup halftime shows are finally starting to improve. <laughs> they, better be better. they better be better with that stadium and evolution and everything. Right. Before, then, before then, it was like a kazoo. It was a kazoo and some sparklers. That's <laughs> tripping over each other and running. You know, it's just <laughs> horrible, the halftime shows. Right. Now, there's two more things that I really want to cover before I let you go. And one of the things would be what you're doing now. And just through our conversation and getting to know you as I have over the last little while, you obviously take a little bit of a mentor role and you do that with youth as well. And I'm really fascinated about this next topic because you brought it up for me to have a conversation with you in regards to losing as a professional athlete. And I'm sure that through losing at the time, it probably just drove you batshit crazy. But at the same time, probably also taught you some lessons and virtues that you're probably passing on to these kids today. So tell me about losing as a pro athlete. I hated to lose. I love to win, but not as half as much I hated to lose. Um, losing, I, I was never satisfied with losing. I know they say you learn a lesson in losing, but I didn't learn anything with losing. I just learned, I, didn't never, I never wanted to be comfortable. Um, we didn't, I, I, and that's probably one, that was actually one of the main reasons why I never played, uh, I never stayed or wanted to stay in Ottawa. And a lot of people don't know, but I've lived here since I came here in 1990. And I, and I play everywhere else but here. But I tried, I tried hard. I tried to stay here in 91. I didn't want to be here. And then, uh, you know, after having children, and after having my, my daughter, I came back to play in 2002 when Joe Papa was here. And that, that was the absolute, that was an absolute shit show. Um, so I, 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 I was done in the middle of the season. I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And, and losing was, you know, losing, great, losing can either bring out the good in you or it can bring out the bad in you. But when you're on a team and you're losing football games and you have players that are coming up to you and asking you, what are you going to do after the game? And it's not even halftime yet. What are we doing after the game? What party are we going to? Yeah, they're thinking about everything but the task at hand. That's so awful. I, I remember, I remember, man, we, when I played for the Renegades, we had a playoff game against BC here in Ottawa. And one of the players came up to me after, at probably in the middle of the third quarter, sat down on the bench next to me after a series. What are we doing after the game? Two of them. And, man, I, it just pissed me off. And I remember after that game, I go in the locker room, uh, before Pow Pop and even have his in-game speech, I just, and I was a veteran of the team. I was the oldest guy in the locker room. I just absolutely unloaded on that entire team. I gave them the business. And then Eric Tillman decides he wants to come downstairs and say something to me, and that wasn't a good idea for me. <laughs> because I think I gave him the business a little more than I gave the team the business. But I just hated to lose, because I wasn't used to losing. I mean, right. in Edmonton, we won. Um, even when I was in BC, we had a hard time, but we won games. Toronto, we lost a lot of football games, but I was surrounded by a lot of guys who would actually be pissed off for losing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Adam Rita wasn't having it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, over, throughout the years, my career was, you know, we, we had, I was on hardworking teams that 
didn't want to lose, that we wanted to win, right? We wanted to win games. We wanted to look good. We wanted to make our coaches proud and make each other proud. But for some reason, on the teams I played on in Ottawa, it wasn't like that. The players just, you know, that was back in the going over the the bridge, the hull days, right? So yeah, buddy. Yeah, they wanted that. They that's what they wanted that, and it showed game day. Man. Yeah. They're open till three, man. Three. They're open till three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. listen, Paul got a lot of people unemployed. Right, <laughs> his, no doubt. Right, so yeah, and. What would be your favorite football memory as a whole? Just My the best. favorite football memory as a whole? Just being able to do it, man. That's tight. You know, you being, you, you, you're, when, you, when you're growing up and you're playing a sport and you say you want to be a professor at that sport, I think what kids don't understand and what parents don't understand and what people in general don't understand is that only 1% make it. And I was that 1%. Mm-hmm. Right? I was that part of that 1%, Right? Not everybody's going to make it to the pros, whatever league. Pro is pro. I mean, if you're getting paid for doing something, you're a professional at it, right? Um, just being able to do it. I, I got a chance to do it. Um, when, you know, I got a chance to um, perfect my craft. I got a chance to showcase my craft. I got a chance to be on TV. I got to be on chance my friends could see me play. I developed friendships out of it. Um, I've gotten, you know, I, I've, I've had... I had a lot of great opportunities happen because I got a chance to play a And you smelled Jerry Rice. <laughs> I remember, listen, funny story. I remember one of my friends, uh, Jerry Rice came here a few years back to do a, uh, a celebrity thing out at somewhere, some hotel somewhere. And one of my friends got tickets for, for me and him to go. Man, I'm not going to that shit. I'm going to throw something at Jerry Rice. <laughs> I, don't want to go. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go at all. I said, I'm not going to go. Oh, let's go. No, I'm not going to go. And he came back the next day, called me disappointed because Jerry Rice was charging $500 for an autograph. <laughs> oh, dang. And you know what? I'm glad I didn't go because I had called him a name. Right. right. So, um, yeah. I got, a chance to, I got a chance to meet a lot of people and do a lot of good things here for that's pretty cool. And that's why we're friends, because that is the perfect answer. I Absolutely. think that is the absolute perfect answer. We're friends because you're a cool-ass dude, J-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Now, let's finish off with your passion, and that's what you're doing right now, is yeah. taking not just the lessons that you've learned in football, but I'm sure the lessons in life and passing it on to the future footballers and human beings yeah. of tomorrow. So. Tell us about what you're doing now, what you have, what has you so jazzed about it, et cetera. Um, right now, what I'm doing is I'm a position coach. I coach, uh, um, I coach receivers, quarterbacks, and DBs. Um, and how I got started doing that was um, my son was just sitting around doing nothing. And I got sick of seeing it, so I started off with a flag football league first on the Quebec side. Um, then after he aged out, I stopped doing that, and I moved to coaching football teams, city team, school team. I coached at a team in, the, in uh, Elmer um, uh, called Darcy McGee Sims. Uh, we, I still was there for three seasons. We lost one game in three years, two back-to-back championships. Um, so right now, I, I started, decided to leave that so I can focus better on just helping the kids more developing their game. So right now, what I do is I, I position train. I have kids from anywhere from my youngest is 14, and I my oldest are two university guys. Um, and so everywhere in between. So I think I got like 28 kids. Um, and they're, they're great athletes. Two of them are signing with university today. 
Um, one of them's already signed. Um, I have my own son has prep school offers in the United States. I have another kid with a couple of prep school offers who's starting to develop everything. So um, these kids are coming along. I have a great time with them. But what these kids don't understand, I may be teaching them something, but I'm learning much more than I can from them than I can ever teach them. Um, these kids are phenomenal, man. They're great kids. And you will be hearing about them, um, whether it's CFL, whether it's NFL, whether it's university, you will be hearing about them because I will put these kids up against any program or anybody in the city because they're absolutely phenomenal athletes. Mm -hmm. And what's the number one takeaway you get from them? The number one takeaway I get from them is just enjoying life. Enjoying life. Like, um, that's part of the reason, being around these kids is part of the reason why um, I made the friendship decision that I was talking about earlier. I made that because life is too short. I mean, life is too short, and not to mention we're going through this pandemic and uh, the, the stuff in the United States with the, with the racial issues and it's, it's dribbling over into Canada. I mean, all that stuff takes a toll on everybody. So when you get a chance to go out there, and, and a lot of people, some people agree and some people disagree that there's a lot of lessons that we as adults can learn from children. Mm -hmm. Like no matter what color you are, depending on where you're from, because there's a lot of this shit going on right now, but a lot of kids, they just want to learn. And they want to be taught by someone that just gives a damn about them. Because there's not a lot of people that give a shit about kids. Most of these guys are coaching and training in this city for the money or for their own notoriety, just so they can look good and have bragging rights. I could care less about that. I am trying to shape lives. I'm trying to further someone's education because there's a lot of kids out there that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. My son's a phenomenal athlete, but am I going to be able to pay $80,000 tuition for him to go to UCLA or USC to go to school and play football? Absolutely not. So if that's going to have to happen, he's going to have to get a scholarship. And how do you do that? You go out and work your ass off. But also, you have to go work your ass off with somebody that knows what they're doing, right? right? There's a lot of guys in the city, especially Ottawa. And Ottawa's bad for it. Now you got people coming from Montreal to come here because there's nobody in the city that really knows what the hell they're doing. I mean, I, I asked a question the other day. Is, is at what point in, in your life, I asked this to a kid, a bunch of group of kids, at what point in your life did you stop listening to the people that have been there and done that and started listening to the people that have never been there and have never done that. Like, how can you teach it if you've never done it? I mean, I know there's some really good coaches and really good CEOs and, and, and really good managers out there of businesses that, that are able to teach you from their classes. They took courses and learning. But I have there's something to be said about hands-on training. I mean, like, I could never do a podcast, like, sit there what you're doing, because I would – I would flake out. I would some of my words. I'd probably hit myself in the face with the mic. I, I would. I would probably do some odd, crazy stuff because this is what you do. You have perfected your craft at it. Like, then that's what I'm trying to do is get these kids to understand that in order for you to move to the next level, in order for you to be successful in your life, you have to perfect your craft. Not only that, you have to give a damn about it at some point. Right? It's it's what you want to do. Make a decision and do it. Right? So okay. that's. That's what I learned from those kids. Those kids teach me a lot. Like, and I have a great time with them. The funniest, the funniest times, the best times is laying at night, just being bored. And they're in the little chat room that I created for them to communicate with them. And they're just kid Jones in each other. It's just, it's the funniest thing. You know, I have to get involved. I have to say something. <laughs> I have to talk trash to them. And, you know, I have to be me. Like, 
we, yeah, I have fun with them. That's awesome. Yeah. And if people want to find out more about that coaching and how they can get involved with you in regards to mentoring their child, uh, where can they go? Go to ev4allstarperformance.com. All right. Um, go there. That's my website. Um, it also has a link where you can contact me. Um, what I, like I said, what I do is I train uh, quarterbacks, receivers, and DBs, um, and we get down to business. It's nothing like it in the city. There's a lot of programs, but we get down to business. We work hard. And like and my, my motto is, is we're different. I mean, we're different on this side of town. We, we do things differently. So Love that's it. what you find. Well, Eddie Brown, not only are you a champion of football, you're a champion of life. Thank and you, honestly, you. it's been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to know you better. Going to give a big shout out to Dwight Beckford. Yes. <laughs> Dwight for making that happen. You yes. know, <laughs> Dwight and I have known each other for many, many years. And it was only after our parents' passing that yeah. we became closer. Yeah. Uh, but if you were to ask Dwight how we actually know each other the best, it would be about 25 years ago, we played a game of Madden. And he's a football coach, for those that don't know, and he prides himself and loves football, his knowledge of football, the X's and O's of football. And as a teen, I beat his ass so bad, because he's a good 10 years older than me, right? So yeah. he was probably 25 or 30, and I was like somewhere around like, you know, 50. He put blood on you? Oh, he tried. Yeah, he tried. Yeah. And yeah, he, he took played, me. He blamed me for it, but he pulled the internet plug on it. <laughs> we, we bet 20 bucks on that game, and I only got that paid back a few years ago. I oh, should have yeah. added interest. If I took inflation, that would have been about 1000 bucks. <laughs> oh, so, now, I got some bragging rights. I can talk now. You should have never told me that. Because Dwight used to be famous. He used to blame me for it. And I did it a couple of times. But Dwight was famous for pulling. You remember when we had to use the old dialogue, internet cord? Right. He used to pull the plug. And it used to cut the connection, right? That's so, like, dirty. Hey, you can't do it anymore now. That's dirty. That is so dirty. That's dirty. So thank you, Eddie Brown, for being on the program. An absolute pleasure. I uh, want to take this time to give some big shout-out love as well to my sponsor, Glomp Media, for websites, uh, graphic design, anything custom, T-shirts, caps, glompmedia.ca. Uh, love you, Sean. Thank you so much for everything that you do. And he's also going to be putting together my brand-new website, which these season three podcasts will debut on. You take care, be well, and love simply because you can. Yes, absolutely. Take care, brother. Man, that was fantastic. Yes, I had fun. Thank you. That was so good. Hey, yes, man. Next time we go out, you pick the table. Don't let Dwight pick the table. All right. You got these and all that stuff, man. <laughs> all right. You got it, brother. We'll catch all up right. soon. Take care. All right. Peace. All right. Bye.